tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Your brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back to our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now, here's the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Thanks for listening, everybody. Welcome to the show. We're going to talk about the fear of attachment and loneliness. Uh, you know, attachment is an amazing thing. So many of us have been in relationships, I'm sure nearly the, ma- the vast majority of the population of the people that are listening to the show have been in, at some point in a relationship where suddenly something just went wrong and the other person changed their mind or we changed our mind and we were all in and then we were all out. And it, it was like, wow, what just happened? What happened? Well, the deal is, is that all of us have mechanisms in us uh, to preserve ourselves or to protect ourselves emotionally. They're called coping skills. And these things actually really create a problem when we're in relationships because uh, we develop uh, triggers that tell us it's time to go or it's time to run or it's time to go away or let's take a time out. And these things are to preserve ourselves emotionally and sometimes they tell us we're just with the wrong person. Uh, you know, sometimes people mix their, their intuition with their actual fears and intuition and fears are two different things. Some people work off of intuition, which is their, what their inner voice is telling them, hey, this person's wrong for me. The other thing is just fear. Oh my God, I am scared of this person. They're getting too close, too much information. Uh, some people lose their attraction to someone once they've passed that intimacy threshold. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's amazing how many people suffer from this issue that I see in therapy. And I'm sure therapists all across the world see this as a pattern in relationships. So what is, you know, what is the fear of intimacy? And it's, it's uh, avoiding closeness in a relationship. And it's, it affects about 17% of adults in the Western culture as as uh, many people may understand, it can be crazy-making and even infuriating to feel dismissed and shut down when you try to get close to someone you love. You know, if you're an avoidant person, you may feel equally confused by the unreasonable emotion demands and, and neurotic nature of people that you're in a relationship with. 
You know, what do these people want from me? You might ask. You, you might be mystified by accusations that you don't care and are not there for your loved ones when you feel that you do care for them and love them greatly. But sometimes we are just unemotional or undetached. We may love people, but we detach ourselves and keep a distance from them. You know, and the good news is, and the bad news, is that this pattern is totally normal. But it doesn't mean that it feels good to be in a relationship with someone who detaches and deactivates emotionally when things get heated. That's called passive-aggressive, by the way. But it's important to understand that, uh, you know, avoidance of intimacy does not necessarily mean someone doesn't care. And it also is, it, it isn't always a conscious process. It's largely a part of a biological reaction that was ingrained in the structures of the central nervous system through uh, parenting practices in childhood. Um, so, you know, the parents of children who become avoidant or dismissing of intimacy tend to reject children's neediness or perceived weaknesses. They may even use shame as a means to control. Uh, you know, little boys don't cry. That would be one of the things that you would say. And you're likely to be very intolerant of children challenging them or telling the parent how they feel. You know, if a child in this type of relationship were to tell their parents that they are angry or frustrated or agitated or that they've had hurt feelings, the parent is likely to react harshly and scold the child for being unappreciative and disrespectful. And this pattern often leads to developing the child to falsify idolizing the parents because of viewing the parent negatively will flood the child with anxiety. And so, in other words, if a parent is going to deny a child's emotions, they're developing a child who's going to become an adult who's going to have a fear of intimacy. So, you know, to summarize, when neediness or negative emotional displays, being sad and crying or expressing anger towards a parent are, are met consistently with parental intolerance, rejection, or punishment, Children learn to avoid asking parents for attention, comfort, and support. And uh, so basically what they do is they avoid emotions, especially negative emotions, because they cause a rift in the parental relationship. And it transfers themselves into a relationship that they will have as an adult. You know, uh, people raised in this environment will begin to ignore social cues that could signal uh, being rejected or marginalized because now they've learned how to avoid it uh, through their parents. And if a negative social cue cannot be ignored, then the person may dismiss the cue as inconsequential. You know, ah, they're a loser. I don't care what they think anyway. And in the event that negative social cues cannot be ignored, the person starts to experience a negative emotion. And that person is likely to engage in suppressing the unwanted experience and push it out of the conscious awareness. So once again, they go into denial when they're faced with emotional confrontation. They blow people off and they marginalize their emotions and uh, they develop a successful pattern of detaching. This doesn't mean they're emotionally, they're not emotionally available. It just means they're not emotionally available if they perceive conflict. You know, because closeness in relationships, uh, romantic or peer-to-peer, -peer, 
uh, it creates vulnerability and a potential for strong negative emotions. And it's often avoided by people who have attachment issues. And this is not to say that avoidant individuals lack friends. They may even be perceived as popular, particularly since they are likely to be successful in, in competition and achievement areas where they get recognition. And uh, so, you know, they may be very stellar performers, but they just cannot deal with personal conflict, you know, uh, you know, because they've learned to ignore and deny their own emotions. And they're very uh, difficult for, for them to recognize emotional cues in others because, especially empathy, because they've been trained that way by their lovely parents. yes. It's all your mother's fault. No, that's not true. It's all your parents' fault. <laughs> I mean, we are a byproduct of how our parents raise us. That doesn't mean we're all of what our parents raise us, but they give us our start. And so, you know, uh, we have to understand that. All right. Now, what can you do with a partner if you're in a relationship with an avoidant person? Well, you have to realize that when the avoidant person shuts down and becomes dismissing, that means he, she is anxious and is trying to clamp down on the experience of emotions. It's easy for someone else to say, uh, but not try to take it personally. Um, also, if the avoidant person needs to get away, don't chase after them. They'll just run faster. Give this person enough space and the chance to feel anxious and miss you. Of course, in order to do this, you'll have to be able to regulate your own distressed emotions. And also, you have to realize that if you need a great deal of intimacy in your relationship, you may have chosen a partner who will have great difficulty giving it to you. So you have to learn to communicate to the other person that has an avoidance issue. And, and, and you have to do it with an easy touch. And what you think it, it, they're feeling and why you think so may be wrong. So you have to go a little bit further with this kind of person. You have to soften. You have to mirror their communication style. Mirroring means you take their energy, you borrow it, and you use it so that it's not so confrontational. Um, this way of communicating can provide a, a way to help the avoidant person gain more personal awareness and feel safer in your company. Also, everyone has strong points. The avoidant, uh, dismissing person will tend to be charismatic and achievement-oriented. They may excel at work and be a good person to have on your team. By extension, the avoidant person has many attractive qualities, and the more challenging aspects of their personality may not be obvious until you start working closer with them and it begins to form. So if, if you're this person or in a relationship with somebody like this, be patient and realize that it took years to learn to cope with emotions this way and learning to recognize and deal directly with difficult emotions will take time, but they can be done and therapy certainly helps people with this kind of stuff. Now, there are people with different attachment styles. Um, you know, a, a secure attached adult tends to be more satisfied in their relationship. Children with secure attachment see their parents as a secure base from which they can venture out of independently and explore the world. And a secure adult has a similar relationship with the romantic partner, feeling secure, connected, while allowing themselves and their partner to move freely. These aren't ultra-paranoid people. Um, you know, secure adults offer support when their partner feels distressed. They also go to their partner for comfort 
when they themselves feel troubled. This is a very healthy person with a very healthy attachment. Their relationships tend to be honest, open, equal, uh, independent, yet they're very loving towards each other and they are securely attached. Uh, they, they, uh, they, they basically are not offering a lot of insecurities. And when people can attach this way, these are the best possible relationships you can have. And any relationship can move itself into secure attachment. Counseling can always help you in this area. Also, there's people that are anxious, preoccupied attachment. Unlike uh, the securely attached people, uh, these people tend to be um, in a desperate form of a fantasy bond. Instead of feeling real love or trust towards their partner, they often feel emotional hunger. Now, that is an important statement. They're frequently looking for their partner to rescue or complete them. And although they're seeking a sense of safety and security by clinging to their partner, they take actions that push their partner away. They become overbearing, over needy, and it's un unbelievable what the damage that this person can do uh, just because they are over-anxious and needy. They just don't understand love because they don't love themselves. And even though anxiously attached individuals act desperate or insecure, more often their behavior exacerbates their own fears. And when they feel uh, unsure of their partner's feelings and unsafe in the relationship, which is usually a communication problem, Instead of uh, feeling love for their, their, their partner, they, they, they feel unsafe and they become clingy and demanding or possessive towards their partner. And they may also interpret independent actions by their partner as an affirmation of fear and then they become detached. For example, if their partner starts socializing more with friends, then uh, they may think, see, they don't love me. This means they're going to leave me. I was right not to trust them. And all of a sudden, we have trust issues and arguments that the other partner is like, wow, where is all this coming from? And it's like, you're psychotic. <laughs> and the truth is, it is psychotic in some ways. There's also uh, uh, another attachment style. It's called a dismissive avoidant attachment. And people with a dismissive avoidant uh, attachment have the tendency to be emotionally distance themselves from their partner. They seek isolation and feel uh, pseudo-independent taking on the role of parenting themselves. They often come off as focused on themselves and maybe overly attending to their, their comforts. Um, pseudo-independence is an illusion as every human being needs to feel connected. Nevertheless, people with the dismissive avoidant attachment tend to lead more inward lives, both denying the importance of loved ones and detaching easily from them. They're often um, uh, psychologically defensive and have the ability to shut down emotionally. And, uh, you know, even in, in a heated emotional situation, they're able to turn off their feelings and not react. For example... Their partner is distressed, threatens to leave them, and they would be respond by saying, I don't care. And that, believe it or not, is another typical pattern of avoidancy. There's also people who have a fearful avoidant attachment. And this is a person with a fearful avoidant attachment lives in an ambivalent state of being afraid of being both too close or too distant from others. They attempt to keep their feelings at bay but are unavailable. 
and they can't just avoid their anxiety or run away from their feelings. Instead, they're overwhelmed by their reactions and often experience emotional storms. They, they tend to be mixed up or unpredictable in their moods. And they see their relationships from the working model that you need to go towards others to get your needs met. But if you get too close to others, they'll hurt you. And in other words, the person they want to go for safety is the same person they are afraid of. And as a result, they have no organized strategy for getting their needs met by others. As adults, these people tend to find themselves in rocky and dramatic relationships with many highs and lows. They often, it's bipolar in some regards. They often have fears of being abandoned, but also struggle with being intimate. They may cling to their partner if they feel rejected, and then they feel trapped when they're close. And, and oftentimes, the timing seems to be off between them and their partner. And a, and a person with fearful avoidant attachment may even wind up in an abusive relationship. And so the good news is it's never too late to develop a secure attachment. The attachment style you develop as a child based on your relationship with your parents or your caretaker doesn't have to define the way you interact as an adult. If you come to know your attachment style, you can actually heal it and uncover ways that you are defending yourselves and fix it. And so one essential way to do this is, is basically by uh, developing a story about yourself, you know, making sense of your life experiences and why you have the attachment issues you have. And if you come to understand why, then we come to understand our triggers. If we can understand our triggers, then we can change them. And, you know, we have to challenge our defense mechanisms because choosing a partner with a secure attachment style and working to develop that relationship is the goal of everybody. But you have to learn how to have a secure relationship. And, and I often tell people in counseling, you know, a relationship is a faith-based institution, not a fear-based. People that have attachment issues are very fear-based in their approach to a relationship and they have very little faith. And so that means there's lots of arguments and everything in a relationship you'll ever argue about is a trust issue. So faith is what leads to trust. I'm going to have faith in you until I trust you. And that's what you have to do to develop a secure attachment to a partner in life. And we all want that. And now uh, we're going we're gonna to take a break in just a few minutes. We're going to go into trust and trust issues and how to ve- develop trust in a relationship and how to avoid these attachment uh, patterns that we all have in our life. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back. It's your world. Motivate, change, succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Dr. Gary Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Southern California, but he is here to help you no matter where you are. Visit drgbmft.com. You can schedule an appointment with Dr. Bell, and many major health insurance plans are accepted. Call or text Dr. Bell today at 951-818-7856. 
or visit drgbmft.com. Dr. Bill could help you take back your life in four to eight carefully constructed sessions. Stop coping and start living in the now. Call 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. Do you have complete control over your thoughts and your life? It seems like we do, but there are always outside forces that are wreaking havoc with that control. How do we get our thoughts back on track, so to speak? Listen for help. My thoughts are holding me hostage with Dr. Jeffrey Fannin. When you command the power of thought, you can achieve or have whatever you want. Make the laws of the universe work for you. Tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it'll take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. Okay, we're talking about the fear of attachment and loneliness. Now, we're going into the issue of trust. And i got to tell you, this, uh, you know, this could be like a 24-hour show if I really went into what trust is all about. But the, the, the bottom line is, if you're going to be in a relationship, Every single thing you'll ever argue about is a trust issue. Every single thing you ever argue about in a relationship is a trust issue, whether it's emotional trust, physical trust, uh, you know, trust to follow through, whatever it is, trust in your family, trust in, in, in your emotional climate and how you are. All of this affects how steady a relationship can be. So anytime you're working on a relationship, especially as a therapist, you're trying to bring people together in the areas where they don't trust each other. So you're not trying to instill love in them because that's something that they control through their emotions. What you're trying to do is reinstate trust because that's the platform that all relationships operate smoothly off of. And if people violate each other's trust continuously in a relationship by making promises that they never fulfill or don't fulfill or are inconsistent in fulfilling, what they're doing is setting the groundwork for a very, very rocky relationship and a very difficult time to be a partner with someone like that. So your dialogues need to be, how can we bring this relationship back to trust? How? Every argument you ever have should be about how to repair the relationship, not what you have done to our relationship. How can we repair it? How can I begin to trust you and you begin to trust me? That means we argue to keep our relationship together, not to drive each other away. And if you think about that from an attachment that is exactly what someone needs to hear that has attachment problems. They need to hear that all arguments are about working on the relationship. It's not a direct attack on you. And if you can do that, you can get people working together that may have all kinds of defense mechanisms not to. 
So, you know, what is trust? According to the Oxford Dictionary, it's a firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, and strength of someone or something. You know, for example, we trust people who are benevolent towards us, who have integrity, who have actions corresponding to their words. We trust someone uh, we can count on to consistently do what is right. And in an intimate relationship, we trust our partner if they are predictable, reliable, and honest. Trust can also be defined as a verb, as actions based on having confidence or trust in oneself. And boy, I tell you something, if you don't trust yourself, you're never going to trust anybody else. And so you have got to instill these things into your character if you're going to enjoy trust in your life. And on an action level, trust involves being able to do something without fear or misgiving. When you do something because it's right, because it's good, because you have a good intention, that's all that anyone cares about. You know, if the outcome is not what people examine when they argue, they examine the motive. What drove it? Why did you do this? What led you to make this decision? How did you decide to make this choice? If you examine someone's process of making a decision, then you, then you begin to trust because you understand what it took to get to where the negative outcome came. People have positive intentions and terrible outcomes, and that's life. We all have that because we don't control the world. Yet we're in a very social, interactive world. And, and we're in a very social, interactive relationship if you're married or in a long-term relationship. And you have got to be, have your head in the game all the time. Okay. So, you know, our, if trust issues are on the rise, you know, uh, what you want to do uh, is begin to focus on how can we get back to trust in the relationship. And... and uh, you know, if we have a question about how to do that, then what you do is you focus on how can I begin? I'm not going to trust you today, but how can I begin to have faith in you? How can I begin to have faith? Let's make an agreement. Let's shake our hands. This is not going to happen again. I'm going to do this and you're going to do that. We're going to start all over based on faith. I'm going to have faith in you, which means you're going to fake it. You're going to act like you trust them until you do. You're going to stop investigating. And if you do investigate, you don't do that behind their back. You do it behind their back. Excuse me. You don't do it in front of them. And you don't display that to them. And you don't continuously question them anymore. Shut up. Shut up and have faith in them. If you're going to investigate, do it on your own. Don't humiliate them because you're eroding the deal that you just made with that person by demonstrating you still don't trust them and you're not operating in good faith. Once again, it's okay to, to investigate, but do it on your own. Don't do it on their time and don't rub it in their face that you're doing that on a continuous basis. Also, to rebuild trust after a betrayal, partners need to identify um, you know, the, the inner voices that they have, the dialogue they keep having themsel with themselves that makes them get stuck in the past. You know, an infidelity caused by the break in trust, they also need to have an extended conversation about what each person wants. You know, the deal is uh, an infidelity in a relationship is a red flag. It's a red flag that there's something wrong. It doesn't mean it's right to have an infidelity because if you're married, you just broke a vow. You are divorced. You may not be divorced legally, but you broke your vow. And so the deal is you have to reclaim your vows with each other if there's going to be a problem. What, what, I'm, what I'm trying to get to is for every trust issue, 
there is the ability to fix it. But you personally may not be able to do that. Maybe you have to go see somebody who knows how to rebuild trust and work with that third party like a therapist or a psychologist to assist you in that. Also, you know, you have to be willing if you're going to rebuild trust to have honesty and integrity and that be a goal that you work towards. That means that both of you agree that if you're in a relationship, you have to be completely honest with each other. You can't be in this mode of I'm going to protect you from the truth that you can't handle this, you know, you can't handle the truth type of thing. No, if you're going to be an adult in a relationship, be honest. Be honest and open even if it's to the detriment of the relationship or your partner. You'd be surprised how resonant people are to hearing the truth. They may not like it. They may react horribly to it. But the deal is that's the quickest route to healing. I always tell someone if, they, if they've had an affair, don't keep it a secret. Open it up and tell your partner if that's why you're there, that's why you're having problems because you have mixed emotions about one person and your partner you better put it on the table so they know what they're working with. Also, integrity. And this means that you operate off values and principles. Integrity means we don't always do what we feel. We do what is right. We, do that, we, we think about more than just ourselves. We think about our relationship. We think about our values that people look to us to have. We think about our own ability to be in relationships with people that is trusting. If you're a person that violates your integrity, meaning you do things that are sneaky or bad or against uh, contracts that you've made with your partner, then you're going to destroy the relationship. Because if you have no integrity, you're not an attractive person. As a matter of fact, people that don't work on their integrity in life end up in nursing homes across the world where no one ever sees you, no one ever looks at you, and no one ever remembers you. And that's because you didn't manage your integrity. Now, that's not everybody. I'm not saying that that's everybody that's in a nursing home that doesn't have people visit, but the vast majority of that population are people who just did not manage their ability to have people trust them. Also, uh, non-defensiveness. You know, the deal is it, you have to be willing to hear someone else's perception of the truth. That doesn't mean it's the truth. But if you're in a relationship, you've got to be able to hear someone's perception. And so often I see people go, no, that's not the truth. No, no, no. Oh, but, but you said, but you said, and interrupt the person when they're telling their truth and their perception. That means there's no respect. And so you have to be a good listener if you're going to be in a relationship. You need to put your big, your big britches on and focus on hearing your partner's perception of the truth. You may not like it, but you need to validate it and you need to give it the air and the time that it needs to be heard. Okay, now, uh, understanding is the other thing, and that's validation. I understand. I hear what you're saying. So what you're telling me is this. These are very important things to maintaining a relationship. And lastly, very direct, assertive communication. And what assertive means is I'm willing to speak to my emotions rather than demonstrate them. All these are being developed to avoid an attachment problem. Direct communication is the remedy towards solving attachment issues. That means I'm just going to tell you how I'm feeling. I'm sad. I'm angry about this. I'm very upset. Stating your emotions without demonstrating them or tone means that you're going to have an adult-to-adult -adult dialogue about 
the truth, your truth and their truth, not the truth. There is no the truth when you're having a relationship. There is our truth. That means her truth and your truth, his truth and his truth, her truth and her truth, his truth and her truth. Whatever the formula is, everybody has got to be heard for conflict to ever get resolved. So if we're going to solve attachment problems in relationships, that means everybody's got to become willing to hear each other's perception and be able to safely validate that perception without saying no, 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 or but, but, but. Okay, now breakups aren't easy for anyone, but uh, you know, have you ever noticed that some people seem to cope with their their breakups better than others, while some who've loved and lost are barely barely able to get out of their, out of bed. Others appear to bounce right back immediately. Of course, every relationship is unique. When one ends, we can expect our emotions to be reflective of specific circumstances. We can be expecting ourselves to try to make ourselves look like we didn't do anything to destroy it. It was all the other person's fault. And uh, there's usually a, a sense of uh, tendency to suffer from romantic loss. And... Um, this may have something to do with our attachment styles. You can tell someone's attachment style by the way they break up. Interesting. So, you know, uh, the deal is, is that we have to see how we've broken up with people in the past to try to determine our own attachment style, whether that is the uh, disorganized attachment uh, and th this disorganized attachment, by the way, is, is a, a form when children are terrified or traumatized by the very person they turn to for safety, usually the parent, by the way. This type of attachment is common among children who have a parent who has unresolved trauma from their own childhood, causing them to act disoriented, alarming when the child at times is of stress. That means they don't react to the child's stress very healthfully. And what they do is they develop a very fear-based environment for the child. You know, the children can't develop in an organized way to get their basic needs met because their parent is unpredictable. And so, as adults, they, meet, they, they fear, uh, they have that what's called, once again, the fearful uh, avoidant attachment style. So let's go back over these attachment styles. Fearful attachment, ambivalent, anxious style of attachment, avoidant attachment, and then there is secure attachment. These are all the styles that we have and that we work with. So, you know, what is this fear of intimacy thing? Fear of intimacy is often a subconscious fear of closeness that frequently affects people's personal relationship. This fear of physical or emotional intimacy tends to show up in people closest and most meaningful relationships. Love is not only hard to find, but strange as it may seem, it can be even more difficult to accept and tolerate. Most of us say that we want to find a loving partner, but as many of us have deep-seated fears of intimacy that make it difficult to be in a close relationship. So the experience of real love often threatens our self-defenses and raises our anxiety as we become vulnerable and open ourselves up to another person. And this leads to a fear of intimacy. Falling in love not only brings you know, excitement and fulfillment, but it also creates anxiety and fears of rejection and potential loss. For this reason, many people shy away 
from loving relationships. Fear of intimacy begins to develop early in life as kids. And when we experience rejection, emotional pain, we often shut down. We learn not to rely on others. Uh, we often may begin to rely on uh, fantasy gratification rather than actual interactions with other people. And, and, you know, fantasies can't hurt us. So people get addicted to that. I can't tell you how many guys get addicted to jacking off rather than uh, having a real relationship. And so, sadly, they live in their heads. They don't literally, they, they don't, uh, over time, develop a sense of connectedness with their partner. And so, uh, we may prefer these fantasies over actual personal interactions and real positive acknowledgement or affection. And after being hurt in our early relationships, we fear being hurt again, and we're reluctant to take another chance on being loved. Also, people who felt unseen or are misunderstood as children may have a hard time believing that someone really could love and value us. The negative feelings we develop towards ourselves in early years become deeply embedded of part of who we think we are. Therefore, when someone is loving and reacts positively toward us, we experience a conflict within ourselves. And we don't know whether to believe this new person's kind of love and loving point of view, or uh, and we look at it, is this a familiar sense of identity or not? So we often react with suspicion and distrust when someone is actually showing love towards us. Isn't that sad? You know, our capacity to accept love and enjoy loving relationships can also be negatively affected by existential issues. Um, when we feel loved and admired, we, we start to place more value on ourselves and begin to appreciate life more. This can lead us to feel more pain about the thought of death. We fear both the loss of our loved one and of ourselves, and in the process, many of us unconsciously pull back from our relationship, and, and fear of death tends to increase the fear of intimacy. You know, even though the fear of intimacy is largely an unconscious process. We can still observe how it affects our behavior. When we push our partner away emotionally or retreat from their affection, we are acting on the sphere of intimacy. Holding back positive qualities that our partner finds most desirable is another way that we act. And we often try to make ourselves less lovable so we don't have uh, the fear of uh, being afraid of a loved one. And this distance uh, re reduces their a person's anxiety when they have attachment issues. And it's also at great cost, especially if you have children. You know, we can overcome a fear of intimacy. We can develop ourselves to start being, stop being afraid of, of love and let someone in. We can recognize behaviors that are driven by our fear of intimacy and challenge these defensive reactions that preclude love. We can remain vulnerable in our loving relationship. I, you know, sometimes to break that barrier, I notice that people don't look each other in the eye and I ask them, just look at each other in the eye and start talking to each other about how you feel about each other and see what happens. Sometimes that just knocks that barrier down really quick. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to talk about how to do attachment parenting, how we deal with loneliness and the fear of being alone and over overcoming that fear. We'll be right back. <music>
us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Do you like what you're hearing on the show today? Dr. Gary Bell wants to help you no matter where you are. He's fast, efficient, effective, and has a no-bull approach to helping you in less than 10 sessions. If you're ready to change right now, drop everything and call or text Dr. Bell at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. You can also follow Dr. Bell on Twitter at drgbmft for some great insight and direction. Are you ready? Make that change. Pick up the phone or go to the site, 951-818-7856 or drgbmft.com. Remember, drgbmft.com. Life is a journey which never gets easier. As we go through life, we just handle things better as we get to know ourselves. Listen for the Mental Sherpa by Theta Spring. Host Alexandra Janelli believes that each of us are pre-programmed with all the answers and tools we need to move through any situation life throws at us. It's discovering those tools and answers that will set us on the right path to enjoying and navigating life. Listen every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but... If you want to send an email, it'll take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back. We're talking about the fear of attachment and loneliness. Um, you know, we're, we're going to go into what's called attachment parenting, which is a therapeutic uh, style of, of way of solving this type of thing. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but I do want to cover it. But before I talk about it, what I'd really like to get to is something earlier in, this, this, uh, in the first segment of the show. Um, I talked about the sense of parents shutting their children's emotions down and uh, giving them conflict and, and raising their voice and, and getting defensive when they hear things their children say that they don't want to hear. You know, the deal is we all have to listen to our children. They are their emotions are developing. We are in a very, very important developmental process of time in their life. And if you're not willing to listen to your child's emotions, uh, you're going to find yourself in a very bad situation with that child later on in life. Not only are they going to have unstable relationships, but they're also going to have a lot of problems connecting with life. So now let's talk about overcoming uh, uh overcoming attachment problems through attachment parenting um this this has a very theoretical basis it's one of the most widely accepted theories of uh personality and social development in all of psychology um mary salter ainsworth and her colleagues developed this theory about 30 years ago and uh, they did a lot of uh, research on uh, healthy personalities, relationships, and even uh, occupational development in couples. Therapy was based on attachment theory uh, as a primary motive 
uh, back in the 70s and the 60s and even uh, into the 80s, and it is still uh, is pervasive today in therapy. Um, so what it is, it is attachment theory emphasizes the nature of the relationship between children and their caregivers, usually parents, and it has its roots in observations made by psychiatrists actually in World War II who noted the impaired physical, psychological, and social developments of infants in hospitals and orphanages who were separated from their parents. And after recognizing that these children needed not just food but physical contact, the caregivers noticed that vast improvements uh, took place in their development. And clinical psychologists went on to propose theories of uh, personality development called object relations that emphasized um, these uh, early mother-infant bonds. And object relations, uh, if you could think about it, is uh, very simply like uh, a child being attached to their doll or to their Winnie the Pooh or whatever, to their blanket. Uh, objects represent something of security to them. So the road, you know, uh, uh, to pr- uh, present attachment theory was pre- uh, presented by Mary uh, Salter Ainsworth, to de- uh, who developed the innovative and, and experiential method known as a strange situation. And the, the key uh, thing in these experiments. Uh, consisted of having mothers play with their tiny tots and you know in in a in a, a lab or in a playroom she would leave them in a room and then return a few minutes later and the, her team observed how the babies reacted both to the mothers leaving them and then more importantly to the reunion and these observations led them to propose different attachment styles and so they categorized infants into groups of a securely and insecurely attached. And by doing that, they were able to figure out how to treat a person, you know, uh, for, you know, an insecurely attached child uh, was uh, either ignored, the returning mother cried inconsolably the whole time she was gone or showed some combination of, of distraught patterns of behavior. And at the same time, you know, Ainsworth was discovering uh, the predictive power of attachment style and and how you could predict it to take place. So um, what she found was that permissive parents are low in control and demand uh, demandingness, but high in support. Authoritarian uh, parents are high in control and demandingness, but low in support and in uh, responsiveness. Authoritarian, Authoritarian parents not not uh, authoritative parents, not authoritarian, expect a lot out of their children because they're high in control and demand, but also high in support and responsiveness. Finally, neglectful parents are low in both dimensions. The most positive outcomes in terms of children's behavior occur when parents adopt an authoritative style that is a mix between a permissive parent and an authoritarian parent. Authoritarian is like a dictator. A permissive parent is like a democracy. So somewhere in the middle is where people need to be. They need to expect a lot out of their kids, but they also need to give that support and they also need to, to, to give them, make their needs met. Uh, we need to be responsive to our children and when they have emotional outbursts, we need to welcome them and not be a threat to them because they're acting like hooligans. You know, and it, it, when these develops, uh, theories were developed and tested, uh, they examined strengths and weaknesses, uh, predicted outcomes in children and adults. But these things were what developed the theory, and that's why it's so important. 
You know, it, there is no fixed approach to attachment. But what you want to do is understand where people came from as children and how they're using those coping skills in their parenting and how they're using it in their coupling with each other. And, uh, you know, if parents read the cues of their babies and then they provide safety to them, what helps happens is there becomes a, uh, a an attachment, a bond, a safety where the child feels in balance. Uh, some of the things is like co-sleeping, either in the same room as their parents or with uh, with a parent with very safe precautions being made in the same bed. They this can involve having bedtime occur on the child's, not the parent's schedule. Also, feeding on demand, which allows the child to set the timing of the feeding, whether it's breast or bottle fed, along with self-weaning, holding and touching, keeping the child physically near, whether through cuddling or cradling or wearing uh, a front or a, a backpack arrangement, you know, a frontal arrangement where you have them attached to you by some kind of a, a, a backpack-looking type of thing. Also, responsiveness to crying is huge. Not letting a child cry it out, but instead intervening early in the crying, reacting to the child's distress before it gets out of control. This is huge as to making a child secure and preventing these attachment issues later on in life. So, um, you know, evidence in, in these studies shows that a wide range of psychological and physical benefits to, if all those four components co-sleeping, feeding on demand, holding and touching, responsiveness to crying are met, then we find that kids have less and less attachment issues in life. So, you know, the first issue, if you look at development of a child uh, in their first year of life, safety is everything to a baby. You can actually affect how well a baby will attach in life in that first year of life if you manage those four things. Co-parent, co-sleeping, feeding on demand, holding and touching, and responsiveness to crying. You know, um, you know how, are, how are mom and dad going to fare through all this? You know, constantly holding their children, having to sleep in the same room being on a child's schedule, ready to soothe their children. So early in crying episodes, it's, it takes a lot out of people. It's rough, but it's rougher if you don't do it because later on in life, these become much greater attention-getting behaviors that are very difficult to manage and sometimes happen not on your schedule. They may happen at school. They may happen in, uh, with grandparents, parents, people that are fragile, and God knows kids can do some great harm to people if, if they uh, start coping in much more violent ways with their problems. Okay, the bottom line is that uh, when you separate the popular exaggerations uh, you know, towards uh, attachment parenting and get more objectively oriented, it, this approach fosters physical and psychological health in children. That is very, very important. All right, now we're going to talk about loneliness because friendship is a lot like food. We need it to survive. What's more, we seem to have a basic drive for it. Psychologists find the human beings have fundamental need for inclusion in group life or for close relationships. You know, we are truly social animals. The upshot is we function best when this social need is met. It's either to stay motivated or to meet the various challenges in life. In fact, Evidence has been growing that when our need for social relationship is not met, we fall apart 
mentally and even physically. There are effects on the brain and on the body. Some effects uh, work subtly uh, through the exposure of uh, multiple body systems and excess amounts of stress hormones. So these stress hormones can affect our heart, our liver, our lungs. They affect everything. And yes, they put toxins in our systems uh, when we're stressed out and lonely. Yet the effects are, are distinct enough to be measured over time so that the unmet social needs take a serious toll on health, eroding our arteries, creating high blood pressure, and even undermining our learning and even our memory. So a, a lack of a, a close friend or, or, uh, or, and a, a broader social contact generally brings emotional discomfort and distress, which is called loneliness. It begins with an awareness of a deficiency of relationships. And this awareness plays through our brain and our emotional soundtrack of ourselves. And so we might feel emptiness. We may be filled with a longing for contact. We may feel isolated and distanced, deprived. These feelings tear away at our emotional well-being. As a matter of fact, chronic uh, loneliness is something else entirely. It's one of the, the, the surest markers to uh, a person's maladjustment to life. In adults, it's a major precipitant of depression and alcoholism, and it increasingly appears in the cause of a range of medical issues, which take decades sometimes to even show up. So living alone increases a person's risk of suicide for young and old alike. And lonely individuals report higher levels of perceived stress even when exposed to the same stressors as non-lonely people, even when they are relaxing. So, you know, loneliness destroys the quality and, and efficiency of sleep. It's also mm -hmm. less restorative, both physically and, and psychologically. People wake up at night and spend less time in bed actually sleeping than they do in a non-lonely life. So, you know, the deal is it, it, it also it sets a slowly unfolding uh, psycho-psychology process that hurts people both physically and mentally. You know, we are built for social contact. So there are serious life-threatening consequences if we don't have that. So many people need to overcome the fear of being alone. And they need to find an activity. And they need to find an activity that they enjoy where they meet a lot of people. And doing something that you like to do will make you happy and will increase your chances of making friends. Also, you want to spend time with animals. You know, animals love us unconditionally. And, and, and people can help us and animals can help us feel better. Animals can be in good company to all of us, whether we're alone or not. Um, you know, there's many local shelters. There's many places where you can get animals where you don't have to pay for them. Also, helping other people is another way to overcome the fear of being alone, you know, and overcoming loneliness. Many people go out there who benefit from your time and skill sets. Depriving them of that is not a good thing. It lacks purpose in life. You know, it, you have to also look that, that it could be worse. It isn't fun being alone, but sometimes there are worse things. For instance, imagine that you're married or stuck in a relationship that you can't get out of and also makes you miserable. And as a result, you're stuck living with someone you can't stand. It makes you depressed. With this viewpoint, being alone doesn't sound that bad. So you have to think it could be worse. It could be worse. 
And you have to be constructive also. Sitting around and doing nothing will not make things any better, whether it's dealing with fear of being alone or something else. Take it one day at a time and stay committed in trying to solve your problem. Also, things can change. Nothing remains the same. No one can predict the future with 100% accuracy. Events change all the time. So even if the thing that you feared does not happen, there are circumstances and factors Mm -hmm. that you can't predict when uh, things are at your advantage. You never know when the help and the answers are looking for will come to you. And you're not the only one who feels alone in this world, and you have to realize that. So let's overcome this attachment issue. Once again, it's a therapeutic issue. It can be solved. You just have to get off your butt and decide you want to solve it. That's our show. Next show is Get a Life. I want to thank everyone for listening. I'd love to hear from you. Get your feedback, drgbmft at sbcglobal.net or Twitter at drgbmft. Now, remember, when you apologize, Say for what you're apologizing. For instance, I'm sorry I hit you in the nuts. Or sorry I projectile vomited on you. Or sorry I had sex in your bed. Please don't use your pillow, by the way. And sorry I clogged your toilet, but I'm feeling much better. You you know, if you consider what I give you as advice on this show, please remember it's probably because I have done more stupid shit than you have. So thank you for listening, and we'll be talking about Get a Life on our next show. That's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now, go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.